Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If you don't know me, it's good to see you. Glad you're here. Uh, at Zoe, um, I say this every once in a while, but I always want to temper expectations, right? At Zoe, we're not the well-oiled machine that a lot of other churches are. We don't have the flash. We don't have the celebrity preacher yet. Just kidding. But to paraphrase the Apostle Peter, right, those silver and gold we don't have, what we do have, we give to you. And what we have simply is the Word of God. We have the Bible. You might have a copy of the Bible. Hopefully you brought one. But week in and week out, our aim isn't to do the best thing ever, but our aim is to simply sit under the teaching of God's Word, opening up the Bible, going through it week by week, book by book, uh, book verse by verse and the book we're in right now is second samuel so if you could open up your bibles to second samuel we can kind of get this ball rolling here but we're in second samuel chapter 13 we're going to be in verses 1 through 22 today and i don't normally do this but i have a disclaimer for you guys as eric mentioned last week during the announcements this text has what we would call disturbing content maybe it deals with things that aren't usually talked about in Scripture and definitely not usually talked about in church. But the thing about expository preaching, preaching through books of the Bible, is that the Bible itself sets the agenda. We're not just picking whatever we want to talk about every week, but we always go to the next chapter and the next group of verses. And a couple of weeks ago, we were in 2 Samuel 12, so now we're in 2 Samuel 13. That's just the way it goes. And we're forced to grapple with what God has said in this chapter, even if it's uncomfortable and difficult. So to put it plainly, I don't want to dance around the issue too much. To put it plainly, the text deals with sexual assault and incest, and that's just on the surface. Now, I promise I'm not going to be any more graphic than the text. I'm not trying to shock or be sensational or anything like that. But if you have kids in here and you really feel like, okay, I had no idea that we were going to talk about this today, I'm not ready for this, then you can step out when I pray for us in a little bit, and it's okay, I won't be offended. Just use wisdom. And I know it's the Bible, right? You might think, well, the Bible has everything for everyone. I mean, even in the synagogue system, some texts the Jewish people wouldn't show their kids until they were a little bit older after they had their bar mitzvah and stuff. So just use your wisdom, use your own discernment. I trust you guys. Just want to make sure that I warned you. And I was actually um, on vacation uh, a few years ago. We were in the paradise land of Hawaii. I have some family there. And I have a friend who's a pastor, and we went to visit his church, um, the church that he pastors. And they were preaching through Second Samuel. And on the week that I was on vacation and I visited, they were in Second Samuel 13, this exact same passage. So I picked a good week to go on vacation. But he was talking about how kind of the same thing, giving a disclaimer about uh, the text a little bit. But he said, sometimes when you try to remove your kids, that only inflames their curiosity. Uh, he was talking to his wife that week about how it would be a difficult text. And his oldest son, who was like eight or nine at the time, he said, what are you preaching on, dad? And he said, don't worry about it. I'll tell you when you're older. And the son just like, what is it? I got to find out what it is. I need to know. Before he would have just been like, who cares what my dad's preaching on? He preaches on boring stuff every week. But now he was way more curious than he would have been. So anyway, just warning you about that too. Kind of a lose-lose. But anyway, (laughs) let's get into it. We don't need to make too big of a deal out of it, I hope, even though I just did. I just wanted to let you know so none of you are caught unaware. 
And as you've done the past few weeks, we're not going to read the text up front. We're going to actually walk through it as we get into it to kind of let the story unfold freshly, I hope. So let me pray for our time. Let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Father, there is nothing that can tear us down like your word. Lord, it can cut us apart. It can convict us. It can show us who we really are. And yet at the same time, there is nothing that can build us up like your word. It can tell us what's possible, that there is salvation and redemption and even transformation in you. So God, I pray that during this time that you would do both things in our hearts, that you would tear us down where we need to be torn down, that you would help us to see the sin in our lives, the idols that we worship, the struggles that we have, maybe to see ourselves as other people see us, objectively. And yet at the same time, God, I pray that you wouldn't leave us there. But I pray, Father, that conviction would lead to repentance and lead to really an understanding, a deeper understanding of how great your grace is, a grace that is greater than any of our struggles or sin. So God, we look to you. We need your spirit to work in us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And we look to him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever noticed that you were turning into your parents Maybe you were talking to your kids the other day, and you said something in the exact same tone that your mom used to say. Or maybe you woke up, and you looked in the mirror, and instead of seeing your own face, you saw your dad's face looking right back at you. It could be reassuring. It could be horrifying, let's be honest. The truth is, though, either way, whether good or bad in your own mind, it is what it is. And I read this story about a guy named Bo O'Reilly. And when Bo was a kid, his father would take him to these big variety shows that he would put on. Uh, Bo was five or six at the time, and his father, James O'Reilly, was kind of a big deal in local circuits in Chicago. He owned a theater, and he was an actor, and he was an entertainer and performer. And he would put on these huge productions with local college groups and, and acting groups. And sometimes he'd bring Bo up on stage with him if the script called for a child, and that's kind of how they bonded. But the thing is, after these shows... Uh, they would rush off. So James would take little Bo with him. They would rush off to a local bar where they'd spend a few hours and Bo would have a, uh, James, excuse me, would have a good time. And then when they had a few minutes left, they would try to hurry to the train station to catch the last train home. But Bo says oftentimes they were too late and they would miss the train and they'd have to wait in the train station all night until morning and his father would just be asleep drunk, snoring, and Bo, who was, again, five or six at the time, would just be waiting there with him. And this scene played on repeat for Bo for the next 25 years, just in different locations. He can remember his father passed out drunk at the kitchen table on Christmas morning. He can remember him driving under the influence and nodding off at the wheel while he was sitting in the passenger seat. He can remember going to Latin Mass, and his father was snoring out loud because he had too much to drink the night before. He was around, but in a sense, he was never around. And then, Bo turned 29, so fast forward a little bit, and something changed between him and his father. He was an adult now. He would find himself getting very drunk almost every day, 
And he decided to move back to Chicago to see his dad. And when they saw each other, his dad offered him a job at the local theater that he worked at. I don't know, something about how he appeared made him do this. And James was unusually warm and kind. And Bo kind of realized in this moment that it probably wasn't so much that they had a father-son bond as it was that James looked at him and he saw a kindred, drunken spirit. He saw kind of a copy of himself, a younger him. And so they worked together, and then they'd rush to the bar to drink and drink. But now they'd be sitting across from each other in a drunk stupor, like father and like son. Now, James O'Reilly, he didn't intend to make his son into a drunk. He didn't push him into the theater and entertainment. He was, for all intents and purposes, a absent father who had abdicated his responsibility to parent. And yet, by example and by heredity, Bo O'Reilly became just like him. Now, there are elements to this fact of life that are good. And there are elements to this fact of life that aren't so good. We won't make a judgment yet. We'll let scripture show us the way. However, this is where we're going to start with the simple observation that it is what it is. You and I, for better or for worse, whether we like it or not, become just like our parents. Have you ever noticed this in yourself? Have you ever noticed that you were turning into your mom or your dad? Have you seen your features and your flaws, maybe in your own children? They were turning into you. If so, join the club, man. It's not exclusive. Its membership actually includes all of humanity. And this is theological. This is how God created it to be. Genesis 5 speaks of uh, the genealogy of Adam's family, the entire human race. And though as human beings, we know that we are created in the image and likeness of God, that's in the very beginning of the Bible. What does it say in Genesis 5, verse 3? It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. We become like our parents. And for you parents here, your kids become like you. If you haven't seen it yet, you will. It's both nature and nurture. It's intentional and unintentional. It's both by what we do and by what we fail to do. And this is an incredibly scary thing. As a matter of fact, someone once said, don't underestimate yourself, your capability to ruin your child's life, end quote. So yeah, uh, this is going to be a sermon that's difficult and uncomfortable and maybe hard to hear, and not just because of the taboo subject matter, but really because of the harsh lesson that God has for us in this text. Honestly, I don't know if I ever would have chosen to preach this, if I could just choose whatever passage any week. But hey, expository preaching, we got to do it. And the truth is, if God inspired it, that means that there's something in here that we do need to hear. And it's not in a lot of other places in Scripture, so I think that God definitely has a word for us. So before we step gingerly, maybe, into the frigid, freezing, convicting waters of 2 Samuel 13, we need to remind ourselves of the context. See, 13 comes after 12, which comes after 11, if you know your math. And in chapter 11, something crazy happened. Two chapters ago, David, the last person in the Bible, and really in the world, that we'd ever expect to commit atrocities fitting a moral monster, David, the man that we were told is a man after God's own heart, saw a woman 
who was not his wife, bathing from the roof, lusted after her, took her for himself, even though she was the wife of one of his most loyal servants. He sent for her. He brought her to himself. And then after he had done the deed, he found out she was pregnant and tried to cover it up by lying. And then eventually had her husband murdered in cold blood. David did this. And David, we read, forgot God in those moments, but God did not forget David. And he sent Nathan the prophet to confront him for the Lord disciplines those he loves. And to David's credit, he repented and God forgave him. You guys remember. But even though we find out here, even though David was forgiven, even though he did not die for his sins and the wages of sin is death, the consequences of his actions remain. And Nathan the prophet, if you remember this in chapter 12, he uttered a prophecy. From now on, the sword will never depart from your house. David's sin is forgiven, but David's sin was an earthquake with aftershocks that would reverberate throughout his entire life, starting right here in chapter 13. So we'll look at this text in three parts as we do. We'll break it down into three acts. The first, the pattern. The pattern which shows us the reality of the fact, like father, like son. Look at verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Now, everything about the first verse is worded very intentionally. If you notice, if you look at the text, the first name that comes up is Absalom. And in this passage, Absalom is not the main character, okay? But for the next few chapters, he will be. And it starts here. And the truth is, no one, not any of David's sons, not even Saul, causes David more pain in his life than Absalom will, his third son. And we'll get into why and what he does in the coming weeks, but I would argue that Absalom, out of all David's sons, is actually the most like David. So there's a lot that we're going to carry over from this week into the next few weeks. There's a lesson in here. But for now, just know that this verse, in a sense, is, or this passage, in a sense, is Absalom's origin story as a future villain. The next person that's introduced is Tamar. Tamar is Absalom's full sister, same father and same mother. And I have to say this because if you look at the third person who was introduced to us, Amnon, notice Amnon is called David's son, not their brother. And the reason is he's their half-brother. He has a different mother. See, polygamy makes things weird and confusing and difficult, and we're going to see some of that in this text. Now, one more thing to note. Earlier in this book, we found out, we found out that Amnon, out of all the firstborn sons that David had because he had so many wives, Amnon is the firstborn. He is the oldest, and therefore he is the heir to the throne. Amnon loves his half-sister Tamar. And we are plunged into this reality show that is David's family. Now, you probably don't need a verse to tell you that this is not a good situation. Right? Even though we live in, I would say, an increasingly godless age where so many things that used to be considered wrong or immoral are now widely accepted and even celebrated, incest is not really one of those things still. People still feel like that's weird, that's wrong, and the Torah was explicit about it. If you look at Leviticus 18.9, you don't have to turn there. Let me read to you. 
It says right in the law, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. And then Deuteronomy 27, 22, cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. But keep reading in our text, verse 2. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now, just sit with that verse for a moment. Just think about what the text actually says. It seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. I mean, it should make you feel uncomfortable. It should make you squirm a little. It's, a, it's really a disgusting way to put it. This is literal objectification. And we're starting to get a picture right off the bat of who David's son, the heir to the throne, is. Amnon is a guy who doesn't mean love in the same way that we mean it. Amnon is a guy who is spoiled. He is the spoiled firstborn of the king. He's used to getting what he wants. The reason he's feeling so torn up about this is because this time he wants something and it seems like he can't get it. You should say her, but you, you got to understand how Amnon is. Verse 3, but Amnon. So he couldn't do anything but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, so also a cousin. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed, pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat from her hand. Now, you got to look at this and just analyze it for a second. Everything is backwards here. Everything is wrong. First of all, Amnon keeps using the word love for how he feels about Tamar. But true love in a biblical sense is not about what you can do to another person. It's about what you can do for another person. It's about selfless sacrifice, even at cost to self. But he's only thinking about what he wants, even at cost to her. Second, Jonadab is said to be his friend. But a true friend is someone who keeps you from ruining your life, not someone who encourages it. All right, what does it say in Proverbs 27, 6? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. A good friend will tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear, even if it's not what you want to hear. Jonadab is no friend. He sends him to go do something that everyone is going to regret. Third, Jonadab is said to be a what kind of person? A crafty person. And the word here in Hebrew is actually the word for wise. It's a positive word usually in the Old Testament scriptures. But here, Jonadab, who has been blessed by God-given wisdom, uses it for the most nefarious and wicked plans. And the translation is intentional. To call him crafty, it calls to mind another crafty being. Do you remember in the garden, the serpent was the craftiest of all the animals? And this is how it is sometimes, where everything is backward, everything is wrong. Lucifer was the most beautiful of angels. And so it's no surprise that the whole plot is about deceit. Pretend to be sick. Get David, who cares about you, to come check on, uh, check on you and your health. Then ask David to send Tamar to prepare food for you, and she won't refuse him. It's clever, it's foolproof, and it's crazy that this conversation is even going on. Because if you take a step back... I mean, just think about what is being said here. Amnon just freely told his cousin 
that he loves his sister. Can you imagine that? You see your friend, and he looks kind of down. He say, how are you doing? You doing okay? Like, you seem kind of down. He'd say, yeah, I just love my sister, and I just want to sleep with her. And then his cousin doesn't react in shock. He's not embarrassed by this. He doesn't try to dissuade him in any way. Instead, he hatches a plan to satisfy his wicked desire. And the worst thing is, because this is incestuous, I mean, Jonadab is Tamar's cousin too. Do you see this? The level of moral corruption here is truly astounding. And yet, if you take out the incest and kind of the grossness and weirdness of it, and consider just the bare bones of what's happening here, if you've been with us for the past few chapters at least, does this not sound a little familiar? The details have been changed, the names have been changed, but what about the plot and how this is un how this is unfolding. Who desired a woman that was clearly off limits? Do you remember? Who was fine with deception as long as it served his own interests? Who's Amnon's father again? Let me tell you a story. When I was on sabbatical, and I talked about this last week a little bit, my family drove to California on this long road trip. When we finally got to California... There were a lot of differences, but one of the biggest differences was how expensive gas was. It was insane. We paid $7 a gallon once. You can believe it. I know, right? Let's close in prayer. But $7 a gallon, and we showed up, and I needed to get gas. So we went to Costco because the costs are low, right? So the lines were long because the costs were low. And I decided to be smart, and I got in what I thought was the shortest line because there was a truck in that line pulling a boat. That's why no one was in that line. So I got behind the guy in the truck with the boat. And finally, after 40 days and 40 nights, we made it to the pump. And he took up both, both of them, right? And I was like, okay, I understand there's a boat. So he started filling up his truck. And I'm like, we're almost there. We're almost to where we need to be. And then he climbs up on his boat and he starts filling up his boat with gas. And literally, I thought Jesus was going to come back before he finished. <laughs> it took so long. I was very frustrated. We had been driving for hours. Finally, he pulled out of the stall, and I said, finally, get out of here, out loud. And then, to my shame, I heard my oldest daughter say, yeah, get out of here, <laughs> from the back seat. And then, to my greater shame, I heard my two-year-old daughter say, yeah, get out of here, all quietly. Now, let me ask you a question. Where did they get that? Did I hear Christine? No, no, I'm just kidding. Where do they get that? It's so obvious. Right? I had no one to blame but myself. I had taught them a terrible lesson because of what I said. Now, I know it's a small, maybe somewhat silly example in a very serious text. But understand on one level, Amnon's sin, it makes no sense. Why would you do this? Why would you ruin your life? Where did this even come from? It's so wrong, so vile, so different from what you'd expect from this house that was full of promise. Literally, it was a house that was given a covenant. One of the sons of David will sit on the throne forever. Except, we've just seen David do the exact same thing. Maybe the names have been changed. Maybe the details are different. But at its rotten core, the sin is the same. It's not exactly the same, but if you have eyes to see, the pattern has already been established. David saw what he wanted. And even though it was wrong, he went for it anyway. And what is Amnon doing except for the exact 
same thing. Sin doesn't have to be sensational. Sin doesn't have to be particularly gross or vile. It can even be culturally accepted in some instances. It can even be legal. But what makes sin, sin, is wanting what God says no to and going after it anyway. Adam and Eve with the forbidden fruit. David with Bathsheba. Amnon with Tamar. Like father, like son. Now let me ask us before we move on. What about us? I think it's tempting to read a text like this and to think, wow, that's crazy, and move on. We watch it like we're watching reality TV, like I said. Oh, those, that family's messed up. I would never do something like that. And maybe exactly like that you wouldn't, but have you ever wanted something you shouldn't have wanted? And did you go for it anyway? I know I wasn't supposed to look at that online, but the urge was just so strong. I know God says not to do such and such before marriage, but we just couldn't wait. I know the Bible says not to, not to neglect meeting together, but I'm just so swamped with these things. I know I shouldn't have shared that gossip, but if I didn't, let it out. It was so juicy, right? Like I would have been sick to my stomach holding it in. Does it sound familiar at all? Because it does to me. And not just because I'm a pastor and I hear it, but because I'm a person and I'm a sinner and I do it. Here's the thing. It's not just that this is a general truth. We're all sinners. I think we all can agree to a certain extent. No one says, of course, I'm perfect. We all make mistakes. But Amnon's sin isn't just a general imperfection. Amnon's sin is like David's sin in kind. It's a sexual sin born out of lust. It's lust pushing up against what's forbidden. And we have to know this. We have to see this in this text. What you struggle with, and this is for you parents here, what you struggle with, your kids will struggle most likely with the same or similar things. I think it's tempting to have rose-colored glasses with our kids sometimes. Oh, my kid is so much better than me. That's not biblical. They might be better than you in some ways, but as a parent, you got to be aware of this. And the things you struggle with, your parents probably struggled or do struggle with the same things too. The pattern is we're made in the image of God, sure, but how that works out is Genesis 5. We're made in the likeness of our fathers and mothers. Amnon hasn't fallen too far from the tree. And this leads to the second point, the perversion. The perversion, I mean it literally. And this point is about the wrong way to deal with the sickness that is inside of us. See, Jonadab gives... Amnon a choice, does he not? He gives him a plan, a way to deal, a blueprint really for wickedness. And at this moment, Amnon can go either way. He could say, you know what? I shouldn't do it. It's tempting, but it's wrong. Amnon isn't being forced to follow this plan. There's no gun to his head. And yet you might understand if you know human nature at all, that even though he's not being forced, even though he could technically say no, he's in this too deep. I mean, there's almost no way that he's not going to try to do what Jonadab says. And look at verse 6, and I'll read to verse 10. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. Exactly what he said. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. 
So Amnar went, uh, Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was laying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. Now, we got to understand, uh, understand something about this plan. Amnon and Tamar, because they were royal and had different mothers, they probably didn't grow up really together at all. Okay, they had different mothers. It's not like the house was so small. They all had to be together. They were probably raised by their mothers, separate, just saw each other every once in a while. So the plan is to get David to send Tamar without her suspecting anything weird is going on. And of course, Amnon is the crown prince. So David's going to want to help him if he actually is sick. So there are layers to this deception. It's really a genius plan in so many different ways. You could see why it unfolds exactly how the crafty Jonadab crafted it to be. Tamar walks right into the trap, verse 11. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. Now, everything about this is bad, but the worst part is he actually calls her sister when he says this. He's not even pretending. He's not even disassociating this at all. Verse 12, she answered him, no, my brother, she's reminding him, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. So Tamar, right, she understands right, right away she's in danger, and she does everything in her power to stop him. She appeals to the fact that he is her brother, first off, reminding him of how taboo and wrong this is. Then she uses the word violate. She gives a name to the act. And then she appeals to how this would bring shame in their culture. She says, people aren't going to like this. We, we don't do this in Israel. And if this is not enough, she says, you would become an outrageous fool. You're going to ruin your life. You're going to ruin my life. In a last-ditch attempt, she tells him to talk to their father about marriage. Now, he's probably not going to do it, right? It's illegal. It's against the law. But she's stalling here. I mean, she's reaching for anything she can. Maybe if he just thinks for a second, maybe he's not in his right mind. He'll think maybe David will marry us and maybe we could just escape this moment, escape the pressure. Maybe David can stop it. But verse 14, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Now, let me ask you a question. Why does this happen? Not what happened, I think we know that just from reading it, but why did this happen? In the Hebrew, it doesn't actually have the word with when it says lay with her. There is nothing consensual about this. The text emphasizes his greater strength. It uses the word violate. There's no question that this is rape, but why? Why? How did we get here? Let me tell you another story. In 1994, over half a million people of the Tutsi ethnic group were killed in Rwanda. You might know this as the Rwandan genocide. Movies have been made about this. It was a terrible thing. A lot of awful, horrible things happened. But one of the worst things happened at this Benedictine convent. See, when the Hutu government was wiping out the Tutsi people, a lot of the people who were being killed, they fled to the churches because they felt like they could find sanctuary 
in these places. And thousands, hundreds, went to this one convent uh, run by this nun named Sister Gertrude. So they showed up there. They were seeking safety, and she pretended to let them in. But right away, she went to the Hutu government and told them that they needed to come to the convent and cleanse it of these people. So they showed up. 700 were shot. And the worst part was some of the people actually fled into the garage uh, to try to get away, and she provided the gasoline to burn them alive. Now, the New York Times Magazine did a story on this, and they were truly dumbfounded. How could these nuns, who seemed so innocent and pure and good, who seemed so angelic and who did help people in a lot of other instances, how could they do something so evil? I mean, they understood that what happened was horrible. There was no question about that. But what they couldn't understand was why it happened. It was unexplainable. Now, we've talked about this a lot. Okay, we've talked about this a lot in Second Samuel. We have this profile of the person who does bad things. And we think bad people do bad things. But what we see in Second Samuel and what we saw in First Samuel is that oftentimes it's the person you least suspect who is capable of the worst. Because we are all sinners. And yet, it still is jarring for us. How could a nun do this? How could a sanctuary become a slaughterhouse? How could Amnon, who supposedly loved Tamar, treat her this way? See, it's when good things are twisted into bad things. It's when good things are shown up, but it's a perversion of those things that we are most shocked. And yet... Maybe we shouldn't be. Mark 7. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read. These are the words of Jesus. Mark 7. And he called, Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then he says a little later, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, come sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things, call it for what it is, come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus says it. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Now, Look at our text. Do you remember how it all started? Verse 1, after a time, Amnon loved her. Verse 2, and Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister. Amnon had this desire inside of him, a wrong and harmful desire. And what he did was he fed it. He let it grow until it was uncontrollable. He fanned the flame of that fire until it burned everything around him. He let it linger and go on until the opportunity came. And by then, he was so deep in it, how could he not do what he did? Now, here's something to think about. James chapter 1, verse 15 says, Then desire, when it is, or when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Desire leads to sin, which leads to death. But desire isn't necessarily the same thing as sin. And Mark 7, Jesus said that it's what's within us. When it comes out, that's what defiles us. 
So the thing is, we all have wrong desires, don't we? Biblically speaking, we might have a desire to lounge around and shirk our responsibilities or a desire to avoid any difficult people or uncomfortable situations. Anytime where we have to actually love somebody, maybe we have a desire to satisfy our anger or our lust. Maybe it's a desire to block out everything by getting blackout drunk. Maybe it's a desire to leave your family and the burdens of your life behind so that you could just pursue fun and whatever you want. Some of us feel like we're getting eaten alive by these desires. I'm not saying it's easy, and there's more to it than what I'm just saying here. But what I'm saying is these desires are in you, and they are your responsibility. It's who you are. For Amnon, at least, the answer was always right there, which is crazy, but it was right there. He said that he loved Tamar. The solution was not to put himself first and her last. The solution was to do what he said and to actually love his sister. Christian, the Bible tells us that God can change our hearts. The problem isn't just behavior. The problem isn't just outside influences. That's not the problem at the end of the day. The problem is who we are inside. But the Bible says that God can change that. He can give us new hearts. The Holy Spirit can produce the right things in us. First of all, love and then joy and peace and patience and all these things. The list keeps going. But it's not just about stopping. It's not just about avoiding situations. Really what it is, is replacing what's inside with what God wants. Give your mental real estate to something good instead. Seek the Lord's help. And see, it's when we nurture our desires that they grow and birth sin And when that happens, these sins ruin our lives and other lives as well. Amnon. Even though he's like David, David's not Amnon. Amnon let these things grow in his heart. He acted it out. He is the one who assaulted Tamar, verse 15. And then look. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. Now, we don't know exactly what Amnon was thinking. Maybe he feels humiliated that he was rejected, that he had to resort to violence. Maybe he's he's feeling shame and self-loathing for ruining his reputation over just a moment of gratification. I don't know. Maybe he even feels a little guilty, but he kicks her out. He wants nothing to do with her. Verse 16, but she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong and sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. And it's like, what? Like, how could sending her away, away from him, be worse than what he just did? But you got to understand the gravity of the situation. Their society wasn't built to be a single, unmarried woman. That's why widows were in such a predicament. You read the book of Ruth. If you wanted to survive, you had to be married. Therefore, the law actually required that if a man violated a woman, he had to marry her and take care of her. And it sounds messed up. It's a terrible situation. Why would you want to be with that person? There are a lot of societal, societal things that could kind of help mitigate that a little bit. But Tamar knows, okay, all that being said, Tamar knows that if she goes away, if he sends her away, then there's no future for her. But look at verse 16. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. In Hebrew, it doesn't even say woman. It just says, put this. It's almost like he views it as taking out the trash. This is how bad it is. 
And this is from a brother who loved her. This is a perversion of love. And this leads us back to where we started. How do we get here? It started with Amnon's heart. And you might say, okay, it feels like you're kind of talking out of two sides of your mouth here. You started off by saying that parents, we have a responsibility to our kids. We underestimate our capability of ruining our kids' lives. And yet, if we look at Amnon, we look at the rest of Scripture, it seems like we are ultimately responsible for ourselves. So what's up with that? And this leads to the third and final point quickly now, the parent. The parent. Which is about how with great responsibility comes great potential for good or for evil. Verse 18. Now she was wearing a long sleeve, uh, wearing a long robe, excuse me, with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So the servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Tamar mourns as if someone had died, and the truth is, it's almost as if she did. The Tamar of that morning was gone. The future had been killed. She knows that nothing can happen for her now. David's not going to marry her off. Other people aren't going to want to marry her. She has no one to take care of her except for maybe her family. As a father, it'll break your heart and fill you with rage at the same time. But look at verse 20. And her brother, Absalom, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman, hear that, in her brother Absalom's house. After this happens, Absalom is the one to comfort her. Absalom, her brother, is the one to invite her to live with him. Absalom. And notice he figures out right away what happened. He suspects that Amnon was the one who did this. And he's not wrong, is he? I mean, we read the text the, the scripture brought us right into the room. But somehow Absalom knows this. And what does this tell us? It tells us that this isn't totally out of character. It's not fully surprising what Amnon did, at least not to Absalom. I mean, you ever hear that maybe one of your old friends did something terrible? They got arrested or something. And have you ever thought, you know what? That's sad, but I'm not surprised. That's exactly what's going on right here. And this is so damning. And I mean that in a literal sense, not to cuss. It's so damning because, do you recall, who did Amnon implicate in his sin? Who did he get to send Tamar into this trap? Do you remember? It was their father, David. And sure, you could say, how could he know? Right? How could he know? Why would a father ever suspect his own son to do this? Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you, how did Absalom know? Something about Amnon tipped off Absalom. Something about Amnon made it so that Absalom was not surprised in the least. And whatever that was, David, by contrast, was blind to it, willfully or not. And that's why Absalom says, it's kind of weird, right? He says, don't take it to heart, hold your peace. Why does he say that? Because he knows there's no use in making a fuss, at least from his perspective. They're, royal, they're the royal family. The only person who can mediate here is David the king. He's literally the only one who has the power and authority to do it. And Absalom believes in his heart of hearts that David's not going to do anything. That's why he says, hold your peace. Don't worry about it. Don't make a fuss. 
And Absalom seems to be a pretty spot-on judge of character, both of Amnon and David, because look at verse 21. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. He's right to be angry. He should be angry. What happened was terrible, despicable, hurtful. He is very angry and nothing. If you look at your text, there is a period at the end of angry, and that's it. He is mad, and he does nothing. In fact, ancient Jewish scholars did add a comment here, which only makes explicit what is implicit. It says he didn't do anything because he loved Amnon so much and didn't want to punish him. His love for Amnon, Amnon's love for Tamar, is this love. Like I've been telling you, like father, like son. And that's what this text is really about. Yes, it's about Tamar. Yes, it's about the sins of Amnon. Yes, it's about introducing us to Absalom and why he is so angry. But how does this chapter begin? These uh, these sons don't stand on their own. Look at verse 1 again. Absalom had a son. I mean, excuse me. Absalom was David's son. And Amnon was David's son. It's a story about them, but from the beginning, really, it's a story about David. David didn't hurt Tamar. David didn't know exactly what Amnon was going to do. And yet the truth is, if David hadn't sinned, think about this, in, in a very similar way, maybe he would have had the boldness to call out what Amnon did from a place of actual integrity. Or think about this. Maybe if David were a more present father who taught his children to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Deuteronomy 6 says, to remind them everywhere they go of this, then maybe things would have unfolded differently. I mean, did you notice that the word God and the word Lord doesn't appear in this text at all? In a story about his kids, they don't mention God once, not even Tamar. And Tamar, I would say, is a model, innocent person here, and yet she doesn't even appeal to God or his word. It's like David's kids don't know about God at all. See, David had a responsibility, and from everything we're seeing, he's dropped the ball. So how does this square with Amnon and his responsibility? How does, past, uh, how does parental responsibility harmonize with personal responsibility? This is the question that we need to answer, and then we'll close. And if we can answer this, we can live out the answer. If we can live out the answer, I think we'll be able to figure out how to move forward. Because I know that when you ever, whenever you bring up parenting in church, it's a touchy thing. For a lot of reasons. Some people really want to have kids, and you haven't been able to for some reason that we don't know. And that's hard. Some of us have a lot of struggles when it comes to parenting. We feel like we're not doing a good job. We compare ourselves to others. So that's hard. Some of us, our kids are grown up, and we feel like we have uh, we wish we could go back and, and have some mulligans or something. We wish we could redo some stuff. We have regrets. That's hard. And then on the flip side, it's not just for parents. It's for children. Because we all have parents. We have parents who are absent. We have parents who didn't do their best. We have parents who did their best, but it wasn't good enough. How do we reconcile all these things? Do we blame them? Do we forgive them? What do we do? We'll keep reading. David drops the ball. I'm going to give you the bad news first. And the last verse puts an exclamation point on it. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, meaning he didn't talk to him ever again. For Absalom hated 
Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Absalom tells Tamar not to take it to heart, but what does he do? He takes it into his own heart. Absalom's love for Tamar turns into an ice-cold hatred of Amnon. And I honestly, and maybe this is something about me, but I feel for Absalom the most. I understand his anger, but it never should have gotten to this point. It never should have gotten here. David, as the king and as their father, should have done something. David failed. And hereby the prophecy starts to come true because the sword will enter into their house through these brothers. Absalom will wait two whole years, saying nothing, acting like everything's cool. And then after David still does nothing, he takes it upon himself to punish Amnon and he kills him. And this will lead to Absalom's estrangement and later rebellion against David and attempted coup. The family will fall apart and the kingdom almost will. And this leads us back to where we began again. Don't underestimate the power you have to ruin your kids' lives. Because if David just did what was right, then maybe this wouldn't have happened. I'm not saying that David can control Amnon or Tamar or Absalom but he did nothing that was in his power to do. See, parents, we have a responsibility to our kids, and your parents did have a responsibility to you. Parents should teach their kids. They should bring them up to know who the Lord is. They should discipline them when they're in the wrong. Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. This is an actuality, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. When parents fail, It always hurts the kids, sometimes physically, as we see in this text, but the actions of parents reverberate throughout their children's entire lives. And yet, Deuteronomy 24, 16 could not be more clear. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So like I said, Amnon is David's son. Absalom is David's son. But David isn't Amnon, nor is he Absalom. He's not the one who kills or rapes. And we have to understand the incredible, perfect justice of God, that we have to each answer to him and him alone at the end of the day for what we did, regardless of the reason. See, look at verses 14 and 16 again, and we'll start to tie this up. Twice, what does it say? Amnon would not what? He wouldn't listen. See, this is how it works. Parents have a responsibility to parent. But you can't control whether or not your kids listen and what they do with it. Parents are responsible for what they say and what they do, for the example that they set. But children are responsible at the end of the day for what they choose to do with those things. And this line is a fine line, but it must be walked because on the one hand, we can fall into the trap of underparenting, thinking, oh, well, God's in control. God is sovereign. I can't change my kid's heart. I'll just leave it up to him, see how the chips fall, whatever. And you are right. You can't change their heart. You can't turn a sinner into a saint by the power of your own parenting. Only Jesus can do that. But you are responsible for what you do and what you say. You're responsible for what comes out of your mouth and how you, how you live, what comes out of your life. Whether they listen or not is on them, but you have a stewardship. And as we see in this text, your actions 
It might not change God's plan for your kid's eternal destiny, but your actions definitely will affect their lives on earth. And the amount of suffering they experience and inflict, it is related to how you live and how you parent. But on the other hand, we can fall into the sheltering trap. And I think a lot of parents, I think we struggle with this because we're so scared of our kids turning out wrong or turning out like us. So we want to protect them from everything. Everything that could tempt them, anything that could lead them astray, anything, any wrong voice that they could listen to. And I think you should protect your kids to a certain extent, don't get me wrong. But I think sometimes in the stress of it and in the worrying of it, we forget that their hearts are a Trojan horse, that the world has already gotten into them from birth, that what they need ultimately at the end of the day is not you as a parent, but God as a parent. So now we're all feeling bad. Everyone's feeling bad here. We're thinking about our parents and their failures. We're thinking about the weight of parenting our own kids and all the ways we are currently falling short. Maybe our kids are grown and we have regrets and we're turning them over in our minds now. If only, right, I hadn't told Amnon to, to uh, or told Tamar to go to Amnon. If only I hadn't fallen with Bathsheba. If only I'd read more Bible stories. I understand. But do you know who understands more than me? It's God. And that's why it's so beautiful that when God stepped into our broken world, he did so, understand this, as the son of David. But this son was different. Instead of asking to be served, he served. Instead of killing out of, uh, out of hate, he died out of love. And he was not only the son of David, but through the divine miracle of the incarnation, he was also the son of God. The father sent his own son, his one and only son, to suffer humiliation and loss and crucifixion and to bear the weight of the world's sin and God's just wrath against sinners. But it wasn't a trap. The son laid down his life willingly. I mean, in the gospel, you can hear echoes of David's children. God sent his son to redeem us because we aren't perfect. The hope is not in perfection. And for you parents, the hope is not in prevention. And for the children here, the hope is not in regrets. There's no peace there. The hope is in redemption. That God can forgive us for our failings. That God can change children from the inside out and give them new hearts. That God can adopt us and call us sons and daughters. We look back and see all these hurts and disappointments and all these things God can take those things and make something good out of them. Parenting matters, but nothing matters ultimately without salvation in Jesus Christ. And that is the hope that we have. We'll close with this. Going back to the original story, Bo and James. Bo grew up, he was 29, became like his father, and they were acting together, they were working together, and Bo said it was actually really great. He said that they were doing lines together, and in the plays, they would talk, and they would, like, even hug and stuff. And even though he was acting, even though the script called for it, he felt like this was, like, the closest I've been to my dad in forever, and he's ever been. But after a couple of weeks, Bo's dad, James, fired him from the production. And Bo said, you know what, I couldn't blame him, honestly, because he kept getting drunk and missing rehearsal, and he would disappear for, like, days at a time and not show up. 
The truth is his dad saw himself in his son, and that's why he hired him. But the truth also was that his dad saw himself in his son, and that's why he had to fire him. A few weeks later, wouldn't you know it, his dad also got fired for being drunk, like father, like son. And the question is, are we doomed to repeat the sins of our parents? Are we doomed to pass on weaknesses and failings, our own weaknesses and failings to our own kids? Well, there's good news and there's bad news. I'll start with the bad. The bad news is, yes, you are, if nothing changes. By nature or by nurture, by intention or even if it's unintentional, Your kids, they are made in your likeness and you are made in the likeness of your parents. However, there is good news. And if you've been around church for a while, you know what this good news is. You can be forgiven in Christ. You can be made new. And really the truth is, as my pastor friend says, you can either become like your parents or because of the gospel, you can become like a different parent. You can be made into his image instead. So what will it be? Will you bow your heads with me? Father, it's an amazing thing that we as sinners who used to be your enemies can call you our Father. That we can draw near and that we can know that your love for us is a real love. A love that is sacrificial and true. A love that we need. And God, you know our weaknesses and our failings. You know our struggles. You know our regrets. But Father, I know that you can work in these things and through these things. That the blood of Christ can cover these things. So Lord, I pray. I pray, God, that you would minister these truths to our hearts. And I pray, God, that the parents in this room would leave here not just convicted, but encouraged and strengthened by your grace. And I pray that for those of us who struggle with our own parents, God, that we would remember your grace toward us, your forgiveness of us, that we might be able to let those things go. And God, I pray for all of us with our sins and the wicked desires of our hearts, that we would look to you, God, and receive the mercy that we need, and also the transformation that we need to be like your son. We're thankful for him. Everything that we have, we owe it to him. We pray these things in his name. In Christ's name, amen.